स्थापका धर्म सेधर्मस्वे अवतारवरिष्ठा रामकृष्णा ते नम वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणूमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम वंदे जगत्कुरुम so in the last class we were studying the 58th shloka of the second chapter of shrimad bhagavat gita so from the 58 to 63 so these are the six verses which is a reply to the question of arjuna to bhagavan that how is sthita pragya a man who is established in his wisdom when he is not in samadhi is not immersed in deep contemplation he has came out of it but at the same time he is not interacting with the world he is sitting he is just with himself so what are the traits which describes which indicates that he is a sthita pragya that he is a man of steady wisdom and the very first shloka in reply to it is the 58th shloka which we were studying in the last class what it says yada sangharate chayam kurmongani vasarvashah indriyanindriyarthebhya stasya pragya pratishthita so one who has withdrawn the one who can withdraw the senses from their objects just the way a tortoise withdraws its limbs into its shell when it's in danger know it for certain his wisdom his divine wisdom is established that nothing can deviate from his wisdom so what it speaks of at first through the process of pratyahar as described in yoga as a sadhaka as we have mentioned that all these lokas indicates both what we have to practice and through practice when you are established what are the spontaneous traits in your life so as a sadhaka this shloka indicates that we have to practice pratyahar that because of our past tendencies it is a natural inclination of our mind to move out through the senses to cling to the objects of the senses so the stimuli response conditioning is that when i see anything pleasurable anything favorable immediately my senses will move out to reach it but if i instead of seeing them to be the objects of pleasure if i can have a far sighted vision if i am not myopic and i can see that in the long run the so called sensed pleasures of life is going to destroy me is in no way 
going to build up my life. I have to broaden my perspective and have to build my life on that perspective. If you have to broaden your perspective, your vision to see far or far-fetched goals, then what? That pratyahara becomes a must. That let me try to get rid of these inordinate attachments. And whenever my mind is going out, let me try to bring it back willfully. So this, but when I'm trying to do it willfully, just as we were indicating the way our muscle strength is increased, the same way the willpower can be increased. This is not the fight which will go on through eternity. For the time being, of course, there will be a type of fight going on within me, a tug of war going on within me. But this, after some time, will calm down. Why? That the, as we were indicating, that the muscle grows because of the feedback. It's not because when you are working against a weight, because of that act, the muscle grows. It's just the opposite. The muscle cells are destroyed when you are working against a weight. It's not growing. But when it is destroyed, and after being destroyed, when it again regrows, then the body has a feedback mechanism. It says the intelligent cells give the feedback that don't replenish the exact number of cells that has been destroyed. Reproduce more, produce more cells. Because now a days he's using these muscles. So just by producing exactly the same number of muscle cells, it cannot cope up with the stress which it is going through. So build more muscles. So it is a feedback. It is not actually the working against the weight that grows the muscle. It is a feedback which comes from the intelligent body, from the intelligent cell that makes the muscle to grow. Similarly, it is a feedback which increases our willpower. What's the feedback? When I am trying to withdraw my senses. As in the last class, we were giving the example of fasting. That for the first time when I'm fasting, I have taken the resolution that I will fast for 24 hours. And then I find by the midday, it's, very, it's my time for having lunch. I'm already, I'm already terribly hungry. What has happened? What's that pangs of hunger speaks of? It's the biological alarm system that we have a biological alarm system. We have a biological clock. The body is in rhythm. It gets a rhythm with our daily regular course of life. But at the time of lunch, the biological clock sets in the biological alarm that it is the time for taking food. And that pangs of hunger is the biological alarm system. It is giving the alarm, have food, take food. So now if you ignore it for some time, what happens? The alarm system itself becomes tired. It stops because you're not responding to the alarm. So the alarm system stops. The pangs you find suddenly is gone. And when the pangs of hunger started, you thought it's just the midday. Another 12 hours I have to spend without taking food. How is it possible? And then you find that if you persevere for a bit few more hours, suddenly the pangs of hunger is gone. Why? The body's feedback mechanism has now just uh, withdrawn itself. It has got tired. It has got the feedback that it won't yield to the alarm system. So it stops. 
Now you can you will find that the body is feeling light, and you can continue with your fasting for few more hours till uh, the midnight when you have already resolved to do the, till the midnight till when you have already resolved to do the fasting. So this is the idea that by which we will find that we can increase our willpower. It's not that we have to fight with it through eternity. After some time, the body adjusts to itself. And that way, you can maintain your calm, your compose, even when you are restraining yourself. It doesn't disturb you. And that's how the gradually the, our reflex mechanism gets altered, changed. That previously, that whenever there was an object of the sensitive object was there, which is to lure me. Now, knowing very well that the long term, if I have to have the long term gain, I have to withdraw myself from it. I have to restrain so that I can engage my time in a better way in some higher pursuits. If I'm constantly disturbed by them, my mind is distracted in all of them. I cannot get focused in the things in which I'm supposed to be focused. So at the beginning, it will be a turmoil, but then the mind comes down, allowing you to resort to the, the pursuits, which actually entails in the long-term gain. So your reflex has not changed. By seeing the objects of the senses, automatically you will find your senses are recoiled instead of being extended out. Just the way seeing a danger, the limbs of the tortoise gets recoiled. The limbs of the tortoise gets recoiled within the shell. So that's why Swami Vivekananda used to say that education is the nervous association of ideas. It's not merely academic. It's not just pure gathering of informations. Uh, you just gather the information and it, and it starts running riot in your mind. That's what our education is. It Most of the time it cannot convince us. It confuses us because we have never tried to internalize the values which have been spoken of. It's just in our intellectual brain. We use those words just to convince others, not to convince myself. So if I have to use those words, the value system to convince myself, not to just to convince others. Most of the time, everywhere we find it's propaganda. Somehow with the words, we are trying to convince others. We never try to convince ourselves. That speaks of the internalization of the values. When we try to convince myself with what I am saying, as Sri Ramakrishna used to say, mon muk ak kora, bhaber gore gore churi na kora. That don't, uh, what you say that, conspire yourself. You are just conspiring against yourself because your mind and your speech are not conforming. So we have something in our mind which is not conforming to a speech. To make the mind and speech conform is sadhana. And that speaks of these internalizations of values by restraining ourselves. That's the first practice. And that's been spoken of in this sloka. So after that, a very pertinent question comes that does the test go away? Yes, I am willfully have been capable of restraining myself from the objects of the senses. But in my mind, the test for it is still there. 
isn't it? Can I get rid of the taste? Unless the taste has gone away, that sense of taste has gone away. There cannot be complete renunciation. Somehow in my mind, I am enjoying those objects of senses, though I'm not physically resorting to it. Is there a way even to get rid of all those desires, which is in my mind, the test for it, that's been spoken of in the next sloka. that for a realized soul that has happened. Maybe it's not for me, the one who is aspiring to go to that realization. Maybe still the test, somehow I have got rid of that inordinate attachment. I'm not drawn towards it forcefully. I can restrain myself from it, but in my mind, still the test for it is still there. How to get rid of that? When that has fallen, then, then only it speaks of complete renunciation. Then only it speaks of the seed has been burnt off. When Sri Ramakrishna used to say that as long as the desires remain even as a seed, there is a chance for sprouting. He used to say, suppose a seed somehow was lying on the terrace of a building for years together. And it appeared to be just like a dead, a dead object, dry, dead object. But it has life. One day a strong wind came and the seed was blown and it fell on the ground and it sprouted. What it speaks of that though it was in the seed form for years, still it has the potential to sprout. Similarly, the desires for the test for the desires, if it is still there in my mind, in future, when uh, my, this is just the way we say to the students that now restrict yourself, restrain yourself. When you get established, then the world is yours. You can enjoy. That's how the parents sometimes try to convince the young ones. What it speaks, let them remain as seed. The chance is there for enjoyment in the later years. So what's the idea? The idea is that these desires, as long as it isn't uprooted, hasn't been dried, the seeds hasn't been burned. The chance of sprouting is still there in the spiritual sense that has, it has the seeds of desires has to be burned. It has to be that's uh, the klesha, as in the Yoga Sutra, they say that you have to become a kushala. The word kushala means dagdha klesha kushala. This raga dvesha abhinivesha, attachment, hatred, fear, all this speaks of our emotional um, attachment with the objects of the senses. I have to get rid of this Raga, Dvesha, Bhinivesha. These are the Kleshas. So I have to burn them, not just attenuate them, just not keep them in the seed form. It has to be burned. So Dagdha Klesha is a Kushala. So I have to become a Kushala. How can I become a Kushala? That's been indicated in the 59th sloka of the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. What Bhagavan is saying, Vishaya vinivartante niraharasya dehina raso varjang rasopyasya param drishtva nivartate. Vishaya vinivartante niraharasya dehina. So an aspirant, a sadhaka may restrain the senses. He may become nirahara. Generally we translate the word nirahara means one who is fasting, he is not taking food. But the actual meaning of the nirahara is one who has restrained his senses. You may say how? That we know that the word nirahara means fasting. How do you say 
that it means restraint of the senses. That way you are just translating in the way that you want. It's not so. If we try to understand the etymological meaning of the word, you will find that the with the gradual general usage of the word, gradually we have made it very specific. It actually has a much broad spectrum. It's not that specific. What the word nirahara means? First, let us take the word ahara. Ni prefix is used in the sense of negation. That when you are not doing ahara, we are not having ahara, that is nirahara. Now then what is the meaning of ahara? The ahara means in Sanskrit, the word ahara came from the root arhyate. To gather in arhyate iti ahara. Whatever you are gathering in is ahara. Arhyate iti ahara. So what we are gathering in, it's not the food alone. What I am seeing through my eyes that I am gathering in, what I am hearing through my ears that I am gathering in, in the form of sound, in the form of sight, through the eyes, in the form of sound, through the ears, in the form of taste, through my tongue, in the form of touch, through my skin, in the form of smell, through my nose. So it's Ahara speaks of the perception, this perception through all the five sense organs, the five Gyanendriyas, the organs of perceptions. So that's why the real translation of Nirahara is the restraining of the senses. So when an aspirant has restrained the senses, Nirahara Dehina. By how he has restored senses from with uh, by vishaya vinivartante by not allowing the senses to reach the objects of the sense of uh, objects of enjoyment, the sensed objects of enjoyment. He was not allowing. So the vishaya vinivartante nirahara dehina means the astrons may restrain the senses from their objects of enjoyment. But that implies what? But that implies that the test has not gone. The rasa is still there. For whom the rasa has also gone? Does it go for uh, the aspirants? Yes, it goes. When he goes to the realization, that's being indicated in the second line. Rasa varjam. The test also is gone. Rasopyasa. Of all the objects of test, raso api asya. That all the tests, the ideas of test which you have in your mind, that also is varja, is gone. When it happens, parang drishtva nivartate. When you have realized the supreme param, the ultimate, drishtva, param drishtva nivartate. When you have realized, you have seen him, it's no more just a mere concept. You have realized the truth. Then nivartate, it falls off. The taste ceases. So as uh, that uh, to understand this sloka very first, that what spiritual realization speaks of. That in Vedanta, it speaks of that unitary experience. When this world of name and form falls off, to give you the conviction that behind this is the non-dual self, which is finding expression as this world of name and form when, come, when this non-dual unitary existence comes in association with the mind, which is a product of ignorance, this world of name and form sprouts off, pops up, 
just the way when the light falls on the prism it breaks into the spectrum similarly this world of name and form as if pops up when that non dual reality comes in association with the prism called mind the sadhaka through his spiritual practice when can get read of that prism of the mind there are the procedures by which we can go beyond the mind and that's the uniqueness of the vedanta philosophy in the western philosophy and the eastern philosophy the basic difference is there when in the western philosophy we speak of the soul the soul the self they say in the words of descartes i think therefore i am so our my amness is as if equated with my thought with my mind and in vedanta the idea is that i the real the i am when i the real me is beyond my thought when i have gone beyond the thought then only i can realize the real me the non local consciousness the unitary experience that happens when you go beyond your mind that's the thing which has been spoken of as param drishtva when you see the ultimate that happens only when the world of name and form has fallen off these two can never exist together when i am seeing a snake in a rope i don't see the rope and the snake together at that time i don't feel that oh it is a rope on which i am seeing the snake at that time i see the snake and snake alone when suddenly someone brings a torch and focuses on it and sees it is not a snake it is just a rope it is because of in the twilight hours the proper light is not there somehow you are confusing and then i see oh yeah it's rope the snake has vanished the snake and the rope can never be together similarly when you go to that ultimate realization the world cannot be it has to fall off because it is the projection of the self so when you go to that realization this world of name and form falls off taking you to that unitary experience and after that when you again come back it's not that samadhi matram that for the first time when you go to the samadhi that doesn't entail that your life is over you again come back to the world of name and form but now you are a total transformed person that now the test has also was vanished for the objects which were luring you the things which by which you were obsessed you will find the test for them also has fallen off and for that the best example which we give again and again is of swami vivekananda's own life experience which he speaks of in one of his lectures that when he was traveling through the deserts of the western india of rajasthan as a parivrajaka as a wandering monk one day he was extremely thirsty and he was in search of water and then suddenly he saw a huge reservoir and he started proceeding towards it to quench his thirst and as he started proceeding after sudden after some time suddenly he saw the reservoir vanished where it is gone and then the idea came that from childhood in my textbook i have studied about mirage and when i studied i had the conceptual knowledge about it and i thought i have known it but it was a mere conceptual knowledge it was not realization but today i have realized what a mirage is 
have experienced. What's the transformation? The next day when I'm again passing through the desert, as I am still in my mind and senses, I'm in my body, I again see the reservoir. That mirage again is visible. It's not that yesterday I have seen and realized that it is a mere projection, that it won't happen again. Again it comes. But what's the difference? Rasang, rasavarja. The test has fallen off. You know it's a mere projection. Now it cannot draw you. It cannot drag you anymore. It is there. Let it be there as it is. It cannot drag you anymore. That is the idea of rasavarjyam, rasopyasya, param drishtva, nivartate. So once you go to that realization, then the test also falls off. So now the question is that what that realization is, that we were just giving an inkling of it. What's the process to go there? So that process has been spoken of in Bhagavad Gita, in the sixth chapter. Bhagavan says two things are necessary, two practices are necessary for our spiritual evolution. They are called Abhyasa and Vairagya. Practice and renunciation. This should go hand in hand. That in the 35th sloka of the 6th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, the sloka comes, Asangshayang Mahabaho Mano Durnigraham Chalam. That it is, there is no doubt about it. That the Krishna has asked the question that we find that it is almost impossible to control the mind. Just the way it is impossible to control the wind. The mind is like the wind. It is almost impossible to control it. What's the way out? God doesn't deny it. Krishna says, Asangshayam. Yes, what you're saying is 100% correct, true. But there is easy way out. What's that? The next line speaks. Abhyasena tukanteya vairagyena through Abhyas and Vairagya. This should go hand in hand. Otherwise, that rasa as a sadhaka is going, to, is going to stay in our mind till we go to that realization. So the taste of the sense object remains for a sadhaka and for those who are pursuing karmakanda or career-oriented education, as we were hinting, that in the career-oriented education, in the olden days, it was the karmakanda of the Vedas. In the modern days, that has been transformed into all the career-oriented education. What we find there also, the concept of this delaying of the gratification is there. And although all the students, the parents say, the teachers say, restrict yourself to a certain extent for some time, and then the world is there for you to enjoy. So for them also, for that type of orientation, the rasa is still there. The test is there. Or the third is those who are sick or old person. They don't have the strength to enjoy, but the rasa is still there. So for those who have this career-oriented parzits or an old person, there is no question of going beyond the rasa. But for the sadhaka, for them also the rasa is there, but they can go beyond the rasa. By how? By practicing abhyasa and vairagya. So what this Vairagya and Abhyasa is? The Vairagya is the thing which we studied in the 58th sloka. That willfully trying to get rid of the inordinate attachment of which I am aware of at present. In my life, as I go through the entire life, as per the circumstances, 
we will find the new desires are popping up. It's not that just this, because of the circumstances they came. It was actually in my mind. It was hidden there as it did not have the proper circumstances to sprout. It was lying hidden. Only those desires which has the favorable circumstances pops up. So sometimes we think that once we get rid of all these desires, which is there prevalent in my mind, I will be at peace. And I struggle a lot with my willpower to get rid of them. And then when somehow I have subdued them and I go to the next stage of life, I find some other types of desires is arising. They were hidden in my mind. And now they get favorable circumstances, they start rising. Now the question is that we are bound to feel totally discouraged if that's the state of our mind. That if there are innumerable desires all waiting to get the favorable circumstance to pop up, how long will I fight? I'm bound to get tired just to get rid of one inordinate attachment. So much of energy is wasted. So much of exertion is required. And again, I have to fight, fight anew with this new desire. How long it will go on? Is this endless? Because there are innumerable vasanas in the subconscious mind. As per the favorable circumstances, one by one they pop up and I have to fight. After when I find that they are not going to help me, I have to fight them. How long this fight will go on? So now Bhagavan says these two practices, Vairagya and Abhyasa. Vairagya speaks of the short-term remedy and Abhyasa speaks of the long-term remedy. So this too has to go hand in hand if we have to get rid of all the desires which are even in my subconscious mind. So that in future, they don't get chance to pop up, even if they get favorable circumstances. That speaks of getting rid of the rasa. So how this can happen? Vairagya speaks of the short-term remedy. So just the example which we give again and again, that what does the short-term remedy and long-term remedy means? Let us forget about the spiritual practice. In our day-to-day -day life, you will find there is something called distress relief. That the area which is flood prone, every year there is flood. A little rain because it is in the low-lying belt. It's quite, uh, uh, it's quite near to the sea level. Very easily it gets flooded. Wherever there's a little rain, there's the flood. And now whenever there's a flood, you of course have to go to rescue the people who are affected by the flood by giving them shelter, by bringing them to some a safe place, giving them shelter and food. Now this is the short term remedy, immediate emergency uh, measures we are taking. But what about the flood next year? Is it go to go, uh, is it to go, uh, continue like this through uh, years together that every year there will be flood, flood and I will have to go and uh, reach out to those people and give them the this pecuniary help in any form which is uh, required for them, or is some there is there some way out? Now there for the long term remedy there is something called distress relief that you when you find that these are the low belt area and it is flood prone. So what you do for the long term remedy you take a project that let's go to the village rebuild the houses. We will help the villagers to rebuild the houses in such a way that the houses are in pillars. 
long pillars so that the ground floor, no one stays. It's only the pillars. It's only in the upstairs. You go up by the stairs. So even if the flood is there, their residence won't be flooded. School buildings will be there with the multi-storied, where even if someone couldn't manage to have their house, proper house, up this uplifted house, they can take shelter in that school building, in this big hall, which is in the upstairs. So all those measures, it needs a lot of resource and it needs time. Yes, maybe it may need three, four years to complete that project. For the three, four years, the short-term, the short-term help, that emergency help is required. That as I have taken the long-term measures, I'm going to take the long-term measures. What these people are going to do for these next two, three years, when the, till the project is completed, the short-term measures are also required. But I cannot go on with the short-term measures for long. So for that, this long-term measures are also taken care of. And after a few years, we find that though the flood is there, the people are well equipped to take care of themselves. They're, they have taken sufficient measures for to handle the crisis, to handle the distress. So this speaks of short-term and long-term remedy in spiritual life. The same thing, the flood in the form of the inordinate desires which have already manifested in my life. I have to practice vairagya, that willful, that uh, using the willpower to restrain myself from all those. And that way I can of course develop the power to restrain myself. But what about the other desires which are still there in my mind? In future they will pop up. And like the flood, again, they will flood my existence. How to get rid of them? For that, the abhyasa. That will be dealt with again in the future. Here, we are just dealing in short to give the idea that how that parandrishtva can lead to the state where the rasa, the taste for all the results has fallen off. That abhyasa speaks of that. What's that? When there is an inordinate desire through vairagya, I'm trying to get rid of it by using my willpower. That is vairagya and abhyasa, practice. What is the practice? Constantly I am contemplating on the divine. That I am, that, that contemplation can be in various form. I can think of myself as the Atman, as the self, as the Brahman, and I can meditate on that. Or I can be a devotee thinking of the divine constantly in my life resorting to this contemplation more and more this will bring the long term remedy how now in both the practices whether you are practicing in the jnana marga or in the bhakti marga the programming which is going on in your mind is the same what's the programming you are reprogramming your mind what's the programming is going on that as a jnani when you are saying, I am Brahman, what you are doing with this constant contemplation, you are hammering the ego, the ego, aham, this asmita, on which is hooked all the desires. First, I have to think myself as a limited entity, then only the other desires come. If I get attached to some delicacy, who gets attached to the delicacy? It is me as the limited self. So I like that. I dislike that. I am afraid of this. So every, all the desires, all the emotional faculties are linked with that I, that limited sense of I. When I'm saying Aham Brahmasmi, 
you are negating that you are that limited I. You are the self, which is Trikala Vadita. The present sense of I is limited in time. I was born at certain point of time. I'm going to die at certain point of time. I exist for a limited time. And that also through constant changes. I was a small young boy. Now I'm an adult. I will be old. So this constant change is going. That's my sense of I at present. The moment I say, Aham Brahmasmi, immediately the idea is, I am limitless. I am beyond time. I, even when this body was not there, I was. Even when this body will die, I will be. I am that. So when you are chanting that, the idea behind that is also illuminating your mind. And that's hammering of that I, which is the hub of the will, where all the spikes are the innumerable desires of which a few are visible, of which I am dealing with Vairagya at present. The others are not visible. As they are not visible, even Vairagya won't help because I don't know. I am, I'm, as they are not visible, there is no question of fighting with them. How to get rid of them? They will come up in the future. Get rid of the hub to which it is being fixed. So when you are, as a jnani, constantly trying to contemplate on the idea, aham brahmasmi, aham brahmasmi, you are trying to hammer the ego out. The more the practice becomes strong, the more the ego is annihilated, the more the ego is subdued. Asmita. And you may say, then what happens with the devotee? The same thing. When I think myself as a devotee of the Lord, what's the idea? The basic idea is that, that not as this body, but as the self, I am eternally association with the divine. That's the basic idea. For whatever may be your religion, whatever may be the faith, whether you are a Vaishnavite or you're a Shaivite, doesn't the devotee feel that I, that I am, I, I was, I am, I will be, and I don't want to uh, continue in this transmigratory process. I want to be one with my Lord through eternity. So you will find the programming is basically the same. There also you are negating, as a devotee, you are negating the idea of this limited self by constantly hammering on that. So that's why we say, if a devotee has worldly gains, that I pray to God to get some worldly gains, then it is totally different then the programming is not going to help you to go out of it because you're still strengthening in the name of God, you're strengthening the ego. You have taken here that as you find the worldly means are not sufficient, you have resorted to God to fulfill your worldly desires. So that way, again, you're strengthening your ego. So even the devotee means the one, the real devotee is the one who's for him, the God is the means, God is the end. World is not the end. For most of us, even in the spiritual life, God is the means, but world is the end. I pray to God because he will give me all the worldly objects of my life. We are not speaking of that devotion. The devotion, the para, this para bhakti, like para vairagya, there is para bhakti, where God is the means, God is the end. I pray to God because I want to enjoy eternal association with the divine. I don't want this world. So with that type of practice, there is no difference between jnana. It is the same. You're hammering the ego, the hub of the will of your personality, where the spikes are the innumerable desires. And if you get rid of the hub, all the spikes will collapse altogether, isn't it? I, if I get rid of one of the spikes, the will still sustains itself because with the hub, there are so many other spikes to sustain your personality. So the will is still sustained. But if I get rid of the hub, 
all the spikes, collapses, getting helping you to get rid of all of them together. And that takes you to the realization because the mind also is dependent on this asmita. When the ignorance comes, this ignorance finds for expression as the mind and the ego. The ego falls off its uh, complement. The mind also falls off, taking you to that realization. So when that param drishtva, you go to that realization, then what happens? Now you will understand. Rasa varjang, the taste, because all the spikes have fallen together. Raso varjang rasapyasya. So in, from both the ways we can now understand. From the Swami Vivekananda example, when you go to that realization, the world appears as just a mere projection. You can never be in love with a projection. The test falls off. It has to be something tangible object, the thing which you want to enjoy. If you find it is a mere projection, the sense of enjoying it is bound to fall off. That's one way. And the other way is when both entails practice, to go to that realization, also it entails practice, to see that the ultimate reality. And this is the way which we are speaking of, that all the spikes, the ego falls off. It also entails in the practice, the same practice, which first helps you to get rid of all the spikes, of all the desires, taking you. And uh, that's what the texture of the mind is. Mind is nothing but the bundle of desires. And all the desires falls off, the mind falls off, and you go to that realization. The prism has fallen off. The, all the spectrum has merged in the white light. And then, even if the spectrum comes back, you know that it is a spectrum. It is no more real to you. And that enables us to go beyond the rasa. And that's what's being indicated by the word rasa varjang, rasopyasya, parang drishtva nivartate. <coughs> Just see how scientific that the entire spiritual journey in these two slokas has already been indicated. That though it is speaking of that highest state of existence of a one who is a sthita pragya, but at the same time it is speaking of the practice which entitles us to reach to that state. So the sadhaka as well as the one who is established sthita pragya, both the for both the uh, what you say the conditions have been described in these slokas. Let's go to the next sloka. What it speaks of now the uncontrolled senses endures the aspirant seeking spiritual uh, this illumination and are yet to uh, who are yet to attain this means if somehow in the process what this next sloka will speak of that this process is not that easy when you're practicing abhyasa and vairagya together till you go to the realization the danger is still there you have to be very, very cautious at each and every step. Once you go to the realization, now there is no danger. Now that you have become an adept dancer, that you need not have to keep your mind on the music. Your legs automatically falls in the tune. You're, you will never be out of tune. But when you are learning to dance, that you have to be very careful. You have to listen to the music and skillfully keep your steps in the rhythm. It needs a lot of practice. And you will find that in our life, whenever we are practicing, it, it's not a straight line. It's always a curve. We feel that we are going to reach the goal and suddenly there is a fall. And again, then we just rise up. And again, there is a fall till we really become competent in whatever skills we are developing. Even when we are for the first time, you we were 
practicing that cycling, so that just to cycle, the cycling. If you remember that when you thought you have learned, suddenly you fall. Again, you just take, what you say, that cautiously you just go on driving and then also the fall happens. So in the spiritual journey also, it's not a straight line, it's a curve. That when through abhyasa and bhairagya, you are you have become quite confident that overconfidence can lead to the fall. That's being indicated in the sixth step, the next sloka. That you have to be very cautious till you reach the goal. Till you have reached the goal, the danger is still there lurking behind you. And you have to be very, very cautious and patient. As in English, there's a proverb because the price of purity is vigilance. You have to be extremely vigilant. A little carelessness can again take you back to where you have started. Again, you have to start anew. So what it is saying, yatoto hi api, yatoto hi api konteya, purushasya vipaschitaha, indriyani pramathini, haranti prasabhang manaha. The senses are so strong and turbulent that, O son of Kunti, Kauntea, that the senses are so strong and turbulent that they can forcibly carry away the mind even of a person endowed with discrimination. Yatato hi api Kauntea purushasya vipaschitaha. Indriyani, this Indriyas are the, the Purusha, the one who is has already resorted to this path of discrimination. For him also, the senses are so strong that they can carry you away. Haranti, Indriyani, Pramathini. Means they can create a tsunami as if in you. And Haranti, you can just take away your discrimination. Again, can steal away your discrimination. You can again just uh, be totally vulnerable to all those onslaughts of the sensate displeasures of life, the sensate inordinate sensitive attachments of life. So what it actually speaks of, that we have to be very, very vigilant. The concept of Sarvarthata and Ekagrata in the Yoga Sutra will try to uh, help us, will explain us that what it is speaking of. That even in our daily life, those who practice meditation, it's a common, it's a very common experience that suddenly one day I feel that my mind is quite calm and tranquil. I was practicing meditation for quite long. I couldn't control my mind, that it was always flowing as if flowing into this to various thoughts. And suddenly one day after long practice, I find it has developed a bit concentration. And now I think, oh, I have attained. Now from tomorrow onwards, I will have this tranquil mind when I sit for meditation. And you find, again, it's just a very short while you could maintain that, that equipoise, that tranquil state. Again, the mind goes back to its, its old state of vagaries. Why it happens? Those who practice meditation, they all know it's a very common feature. So in the Yoga Sutra, very nicely it has been dealt with. They say that our subconscious mind is full of all those innumerable vagaries, the desires. They all want to be pampered. When you sit for meditation, 
they all want to take your attention so just like the granny is sitting with all in the in the holiday all the grandchildren has went to the uh, is spending some time with the nanny the nanny is most probably busy in doing some work and all the grandchildren are sitting around her and now they all want to be pampered just what is the state of our mind all want to be pampered there are innumerable such desires in our mind they all want to be pampered that's why when you're sitting for meditation they all suddenly one thought comes and uh, for a few moment it stays and again a sudden another thought pops up and we feel frustrated by gradual practice we find that suddenly one day to certain extent we can have the tranquility and before we can enjoy it again it's gone so why it happens this sarvartha this mind is full of all those vagaries now if we compare the conscious mind with the surface of a lake that the conscious mind is the surface of a lake that the surface of the lake is disturbed by two things the bubbles which are coming from the bottom of the lake they come and burst on the surface of the lake and that's how the surface is disturbed and another way to disturb the mind the surface of the lake is throw pelt some stones on the surface of the lake then again the lake will break into ripples it is disturbed so what this pelting stone is it's just the conscious thoughts with the senses we perceive the world and immediately we have a knowledge out of it that speaks of pelting of the stones even in the conscious mind whatever we are thinking that speaks of the pelting of stones on the conscious mind all our resolutions speaks of the pelting stone pelting of stone that's how our mind is constantly getting disturbed and all the things which are deep in my psyche in the subconscious mind now and then they are popping up in my conscious mind they are again disturbing so this is the state of our conscious mind now when i start meditation then what i take i take the resolution i will stop all this pelting of stones this pelting of stones let me stop let me try not to pelt through all my close my eyes ears that's why for meditation we sit in a place which is quiet calm no noise so that the tranquility is all the senses are cut off from perception so that my mind gradually becomes tranquil my conscious mind is not disturbed by any of this conscious sensual perceits but what about those which are popping up from below they come now to disturb your mind so though you are trying to keep your conscious mind free from all conscious sensed perceptions the subconscious mind starts disturbing you then what's the way out <clears throat> if this is the state of mind can i not get rid of all of them there is a way out the way out is to know that how those vagaries which are in my subconscious mind how they went there <coughs> they have went there how they have went there now the entry to the subconscious is through the conscious mind that whatever i think in my conscious mind is not lost whatever i perceive with the senses with my conscious mind is not lost they go deep into my subconscious mind and there they remain as samskara and whenever these samskaras get favorable circumstances as memory as smriti 
as memory, they come up as the bubble to pop up on the surface of my mind. So all the conscious thoughts have entered into my subconscious mind to be there as all the subconscious samskaras, lateral impressions. So all these lateral impressions which are disturbing me now, now all these, so these subconscious mind thoughts, the samskaras which are disturbing me now, at some point of time in this life or in the previous life, we have thought them consciously. Thinking them to be the necessity, we have thought them consciously again and again. And that's how they have went and saturated my subconscious mind. Now, this conscious attempt to keep my mind without any this uh, conscious thoughts, means all these perceptual thoughts, is very feeble. This resolution is very feeble compared to this subconscious mind. So each and every attempt to keep my mind calm immediately is disturbed, is broken by all these subconscious thoughts. And what's the way out? The way out is hidden in the mechanism of the working of the mind. That all the things which are in my subconscious mind has entered through the conscious mind. So at present, when I'm trying to keep my mind focused, concentrated, though this resolution is very feeble compared to the, my subconscious vagaries, but still it is creating an impression because whatever I think with my conscious mind creates an impression and goes to the subconscious. So this is gradually going to the subconscious mind, gradually going to the subconscious mind. And this attempt to keep my mind in ekagravritti, in one thought, in contemplation, this is now starts saturating my subconscious mind. And when it saturates, it washes off the vagaries because they are opposite by nature. The concentration and the distraction cannot stay together. When the concentration, the vrittis of ekavritti, ekagrata is concentrating, is saturating your subconscious mind, the vagaries are getting washed off. That example which we give again and again, it's just like a cup of water full of impurities, full of turgid contents. It's full to the brim. Now you take and you just pour some pure water on that filled cup, the cup which is filled with the turgid contents. As it is filled to the brim, what will happen? The water will start flashing off, is, will spill off. The cup will start spilling off. And as it starts spilling off, the turgid contents also start spilling off. The turgidity will be diluted. At the beginning, the turgidity will be reduced. It is getting diluted. And a time will come, all the turgidity has been washed off, has been spilled over, the cup to be filled with only pure water. That's how gradually our mind changes from Sarvarthata to Ekagrata. Now in the process, if I give laxity, if that I'm practicing meditation, I stop it for a while. And I think, let me just enjoy the world a little. And again, I will resort to the practice. I forget that through the conscious mind, again, I'm allowing the vagaries to enter and they are already very strong. And this will add up to the strength and making my practice weak. So no lapse, this lapse is very, very dangerous in spiritual path. It is always waiting there to lure us 
So there's a wonderful story. We will continue with this sloka again in the next class. There's a, there's to, there with the, we will resort to many stories to understand this idea that in spiritual life, the laxity or little carelessness is very dangerous because all these so-called the luxuries, the sensual, sensual temptation, they don't suddenly attack, they creep. Slowly and slowly they creep in. There's a wonderful story that in the desert, you know, there's the daytime, it is terribly hot and the night is equally cold. So at night to get rid of, uh, to, to uh, not be exposed to that cold weather in a camp, a person was resting who had a camel, the camel was outside. And inside the, tam, uh, uh, this, uh, inside the tent, it was quite warm. He has lit some fire and to keep himself warm. And suddenly he saw his camel has peeped in its head inside the camp. And seeing that the master asked, what's the matter? Why have you peeped in? Just allow me to keep the head in. It's so cold outside. Just I want to keep my head a bit warm. The master thought, okay, let it keep its head a little in. And then gradually it, what it found, it started peeking, peeping in little by little, a little more. First the head peeped in and then the neck and then the front two legs and gradually it itself peeped, the entire body peeped in. Now the, cat, the tent was small. It cannot allow both of them to stay together. And now once the entire camel has came in, now it has sufficient strength. It simply kicked the master out of the tent. And that's what happens with our mind. When we think these little pleasures, these innocent pleasures are okay, let me resort to it. We don't know that we are allowing the camel to gradually, to gradually enter into the tent of our body. Gradually we are alive. It doesn't come in a single go. It comes gradually, it creeps. So that's the warning which has been mentioned here, that when once you go to the realization, know it for certain, and nothing can, nothing can disturb you. But till you go to that, you have to be very firm and steady in your practice, not allowing any lapse. Because know it for certain, the indriyas are very strong. A little lapse, a little enjoyment you allow, it will again drag you down. As Shankaracharya gives a very nice example, in the spiritual journey, if your goal is to go to the terrace by climbing the steps, once you go to the terrace, you are safe. But as long as you are climbing the steps, you are yet to reach the terrace. And suppose you have a ball in your hand and you are climbing the steps. In Vivek Churamani, he gives this example. And you have reached almost the, almost the terrace you have reached. Only few steps remaining. And then suddenly you trip because of your carelessness. You trip. Your leg gets stuck in one of the stairs. You trip. And as you trip, the ball falls from your hand. And then Shankaracharya is saying, the ball won't stay in the step in which it has fallen. It will simply roll back from where you have started. It will just go down. Again, you have to go down to bring the ball up. You have to start as if anew. So that's why till you have reached that illumination, you have to be very cautious because know it for certain, Indriyani, Pramathini, Haranthi Prasabhangmana. It can just drag. It can create a tsunami. It already has that force. If you add a little fuel to it, it will simply overwhelm you. So this is the warning he's giving.
the first sloka he spoke of that vairagya the next sloka he told that it's the vairagya alone is not sufficient you have to go to the realization for which abhyas is required and now these two practices has to go hand in hand without giving scope of any laxity till you reach to the ultimate goal in the words of swami vivekananda which that uh, this his quotation which is free translation of one of the slokas of kathopanishad is arise awake and stop not that stop not is very important we tend to stop now and then stop not till the goal is reached so we have to proceed assiduously without any laxity and with vigilance till we reach the goal so that it is of course a very uh, what you say um, tough journey as again in that kathopanishad is being spoken of that nishita duratya kshurasya dhara nishita duratya the journey is like walking on the rage of age of a razor but it is very difficult but it is not impossible climbing the everest is very difficult but it is not impossible so we shouldn't imp- equate the word difficulty with impossibility it is difficult but it is not impossible and that's why that the precautionary measures which we have learned from the others fault which we have to we have to be taken as milestone very interesting when the one who climbs the everest you know that it's all snow the, the landmarks you know what's the landmarks that how the what's the how they how they find the path when they are going to the everest the the guide will say that you just walk 100 meters there you will find one dead body wearing a yellow color jacket it's lying there because in in the snow the dead bodies don't decompose they will stay for years so you will find a dead body a corpse there with a yellow jacket from there you take left turn and then again you will find such and such dead body with such and such indications take right turn so they become the guide posts the milestones to take you to the ultimate goal in spiritual journey many have failed and those who have failed lying as corpses as if in the path they show us that how assiduous we have to be how precautious cautious we have to be in our journey <coughs> they become the milestone and bhagwan is speaking of those milestones here don't be a, a just a little careless be vigilant assiduously proceed in this path and know it for certain the goal is waiting for you so with this we stop our discussion today from the 60th sloka again we'll continue in the next class thank you all namaskars